The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Well, Apple is getting hit by a reported crackdown on iPhone use in China. The Wall Street Journal reporting Beijing is implementing a ban for government employees And now Bloomberg reporting the ban could expand beyond government workers. This all comes as Chinese smartphone maker Huawei unveils its newest smartphone. And a teardown reportedly shows that the phone's chip is more advanced than initially thought. The real question is, have we entered a retaliatory tit-for-tat cycle like we saw during the trade war? And if we have, and it's possible that we have, then there are some sectors some companies that I think will have some challenges. I think in aviation, China has an alternative in their mind. They're happy to play Airbus off of Boeing. Automobiles, look, this past week we saw BYD in Europe at the Munich Auto Show and their message was, we're beating you in our home market and we're coming to Europe to beat you in your market. So, you know, I think there are a lot of concerns here about whether or not we are in fact Uh, in this retaliatory cycle. And if we are, even though companies may see themselves as multinational brands or global companies, frequently governments and citizens, particularly nationalist citizens with the rise in populist movements around the world, don't see companies as multinational. They see a flag attached to them. And if you go into China, you have to understand there are a lot of competitors there you're going to have to get into a competition mindset and the Chinese have their own widgets and they're looking to sell them, not just in China, but in third markets as well. President Xi not coming to the G20 summit. Is that actually a big deal? It's a very big deal. It's not only the first time he skipped a G20 summit. It's the first time any Chinese leader, going back to his predecessor, Hu Jintao, has skipped a G20 leader summit. Why it matters for markets. If the world's second largest economy is going to disengage in some way from the G20, it might not have a direct impact on this G20 in India. But remember when we need the G20, the global financial crisis, when they agreed to coordinate a fiscal stimulus of $5 trillion, the outbreak of COVID and the health policies and the coordinated actions they took. You need the G20 together when there's a crisis. And if we get into a situation and we don't have China's full engagement and support for that institution, we could really feel the impacts of that down the road. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. This week's catalysts were centered around strong economic results for the U.S., weak economic results out of China, and reports China is throwing out some rotten Apple iPhones. U.S. economic announcements this week were by and large good, but unfortunately for stocks, good means bad. Uh, The fear is that if economic results improve, employment remains tight, and oil and interest rates rise, then these factors influence the Fed to stay higher for longer or potentially begin raising rates again. While confidence is high, the Fed will not move rates this month. Next month's meeting is a coin toss at this point. On to the numbers. Wednesday, the ISM Services Purchasing Managers Index jumped to 54.5 for August from 52.7. And the price index rose to 58.9 from 56.8. Anything above 50 shows that these readings are expanding. And the two-year Treasury yield, sensitive to the Fed hikes, settled up eight basis points from the previous day on the result of those news to 5.04%. 
Also note that the ISM Manufacturer Index was released last week and has turned up for the past two months, a good sign that manufacturing may be recovering. Thursday's low unemployment claims report came in at 216,000, the lowest level since February. Second quarter productivity was revised to 3.5% growth from 3.7, while the unit labor costs were revised higher to 2.2% from 1.6. However, it still shows some disinflation with the cost being up only 2.5% over a year ago. To summarize, we had indications of recovery in manufacturing, labor costs rising, services expanding, and unemployment claims falling, which were good reports on the economy. Goldman Sachs announced this week they now see a 15% chance of recession versus 20. They keep moving that down. The bad news is the Fed will stay restrictive. Tuesday this week, Fed Governor Waller and FOMC voters said nothing they saw in the data last week with the jobs report and the manufacturing report meant the Fed needs to do anything soon. News out of China continues to affect investors in September as it did in August. While bad news has been acceptable in the U.S., it is not so for China. China reported an 8.8% year-over-year decline in exports and a 7.3% year-over-year decline in imports for August this Wednesday. The news initially sent yields lower for bonds, but that turned up around about the time the U.S. unemployment claims hit. Note that the People's Bank of China has been aggressive at easing policy to help China, and many analysts expect to see a turnaround for the better in the fourth quarter. And recall, there were recent reports last week that the Kaixin manufacturing PMI rose to 51 from 49.2, above expectations for August. This week, it was also announced that China launched a $40 billion fund to boost the chip industry. China's largest banks announced they'll be lowering rates for first-time mortgages as well. Besides the economic report this week, there was news that China is banning government officials from using Apple devices. Thursday, Bloomberg reported that China's iPhone ban could extend to state and federal agencies. The news seems to coincide with reports that Huawei is introducing a new smartphone to compete with Apple. Because of that, it's tough to assume that maybe the government is changing policies just to help Huawei or whether such bans and controls could be extended to other U.S. companies that have previously had good relationships with China. It's yet another shot across the bow, either way for the U.S. and China relations, which have been deteriorating for some time. Apple is the largest weighting in the S&P 500, so weakness in Apple usually spells weakness for the stock market. Semiconductor Index was hit hard on the news Thursday, with the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index down 3.17% this week, with the well-known companies like Qualcomm down 8% and any NVIDIA down 6%. Another issue somewhat related to inflation fears in the Fed this week was the announcement that Saudi Arabia and Russia are planning to extend their voluntary oil production cuts of 1 million barrels per day and 300,000 barrels per day through the end of 2023. U.S. light crude finished the week up 1.54% to $86.87 with Friday's drop ending a nine-day streak of rising prices. That wraps up the week in finance with better economic results and rising rate and oil prices influencing fears the Fed may raise rates with a 50-50 chance almost next month. China's economic results continue to influence monetary and fiscal stimulus. Finally, some controls on iPhones for government officials stokes fears China may spread restrictions to other U.S. companies. We saw rates rise oil rise, and stocks fall as a result of these catalysts this week. 
Next week, important CPI reports, that's Consumer Price Index for August, will be released on Wednesday, and the European Central Bank will hold its next policy meeting on Thursday, and there's a lot of expectations that the bank could pause. Up next, we've got Dan Wabtrowski, our technician for the week. Apple has been able to avoid censure from the Chinese government for a lot longer than I think anyone really uh, thought possible. Uh, they've been able to negotiate the paths of power within China with, I think, a, a degree of expertise that most diplomatic services would envy. But the harsh reality is, is that Apple is a U.S. company and most particularly a U.S. tech company. And there is increasing geopolitical stress around uh, the availability of chips, where they're manufactured, who has the IP. And uh, Apple is obviously at the center of that. So I think it's inevitable that uh, there is going to be an effort to use the company as a chess piece within this broader geopolitical competition between China and the USA. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, if there's any good news this year, the markets are still in positive territory. But we are in that part of the year when typically the market is weak or correcting. Will this correction go beyond this? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Dan Watropsky from Janie Montgomery Scott. Dan, what is it about September? It seems like every single year the markets tend to correct or it's the month of correction. What is it about September that brings this about? Seasonality studies, when you go back and you use something like the Stock Traders Almanac that has the statistics, October was um, traditionally um, one of the scariest months, one of the most volatile months for the markets in the U.S., but also one of the months that had uh, typically produced you know, significant bottoms in the markets as well. And I, I think that that statistic you know, sort of holds up. I mean, you know, nothing that we look at is ever 100% perfect all of the time, um, but October bottoms um, have been frequent even over the last two to three decades. And I think, you know, because of the technological age we live in now, the uh, rapidity with, uh, with which information, um, you know, gets across our computer screens uh, and instant access um, to so many different inputs, you know, a lot of that sort of seasonality now begins in September. And, and so it's sort of been, you know, pushed forward a little bit. And so coming after the Labor Day weekend, you start to see September as a seasonally weak period. Uh, and perhaps it's just a function of, you know, everybody believing it, so to speak. Um, you know, in, outside of that, really from our perspective, 
you know, we tend to rely less on seasonality studies. I mean, in this particular case, seasonality studies, you know, fit in with our current thesis. And that's, you know, to look beyond seasonality, you know, what's going on technically with the markets, what's going on with capital rotation around the world, what's going on on the macro front that could be disruptors to the equity markets. And even when you look beyond the lens of seasonality, um, coming into August, coming into the September timeframe, you know, there were a number of sort of warning signs in the markets that we felt um, bared, you know, a, a message to our readers and to our clients. Um, remember, this year started off um, with a strong rally, you know, but that really that rally really masked underlying problems in the markets. The the rally this year was a part of a function of the correction last year, which was really a cyclical downturn in global equity markets. That culminated in a mark an uh, October bottom uh, last year in mid October with the S and P I think around thirty five hundred to thirty six hundred. You had some capitulation there, bearishness and sentiment was very high there. You saw extremes, saw several ninety percent downside days, so you saw flush outs. And when you see something like that, you're typically going to see counter trend moves and and some type of bottom, whether it's a major bottom or even a temporary bottom. So. You know, the, a, a huge function of this year's first half rally was those conditions um, stemming from, you know, the October decline from really 2022's bear market culminating in that October bottom. That's one part of it. You had a huge oversold rally this year to start off the new year in 2023. Aside from that, we had two functions, I think. One was a keen eye on what Fed policy, monetary policy was going to do to overall liquidity conditions. And then number two, you had sort of that outburst in sentiment and AI. Uh, and, you know, there's people calling, well, there was a bubble in AI. There was a bubble in mega cap tech. Um, I, I don't get too deep in the weeds, you know, on a fundamental basis, what happened there. Um, but as a function, really, of these three things, right, oversold market conditions from October, uh, myop myopic focus on Fed policy, um, where the handicap was that things were going to start to cool and the Fed would start to pull back a little bit. And then sort of this new um, attention given to AI, you know, that led to really split markets in, in terms of the first half rally. We look at the first half of this year and they say, well, the markets were rallying. Well, yeah, no, the, the markets were really focused and were very narrowly pointed into just a few areas. Uh, and that was mega cap stocks and really mega cap tech and, and AI and, and things connected with AI. And so that produced big, big returns first half of this year on the S&P 500 and certainly the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100. But when we looked beyond that, you know, we saw a, a very different picture. The broader markets represented by everything from the NYSE composite to the Russell 2000, small cap 600, mid cap 400. They were all moving sideways, if, if not lower. And they really weren't producing a lot of the same sort of technical milestones that, that our leadership was producing. So the, the whole first year rally really was on very, very poor breath and participation. So again, you had these deep oversold conditions from 2022's bear market. You had a, a focus and a fervor surrounding um, AI. 
Uh, and then you had this notion that, you know, inflation was starting to cool, the Fed is going to start to cool as well. And so that allowed sort of this risk on rotation. So that, that was kind of the first half. So that culminated into extremely overbought and extended sectors by July, August of the summer. I mean, by July, you had hit new recovery highs in the S&P, pushing just north of 4,600. Uh, and the NASDAQ was encroaching upon its prior all-time highs. So huge rally efforts out of leadership, which pushed them into very extended, very overbought territory. They, they just ran too far too fast. But you see against that, the broader markets were not confirming it. They were not participating. And so thin oversold rallies like that cannot be sustainable. And I think that's led us to where we are today. The Correction as it stands really started around August 1st or 2nd. We had an oversold rally a few weeks ago, and now we're seeing resumption of sort of more corrective effort. And again, I think it's a function of deep overbought conditions, extreme overbought extended conditions in leadership areas like tech, mega cap, you know, S&P 500, NASDAQ 100 against very poor participation of the broader markets. And so that's led to this repricing that we have. Now, outside of that, you do, we have macro factors that are impacting things. You know, number one, liquidity is tightening. Global money supply is tightening. Uh, number two, the Fed raised rates aggressively, and they've, they're still indicating they can, and, and they may have to, uh, as inflation remains persistent. Uh, alongside that, you have geopolitical factors. I think we're starting to see escalation China, Russia, Ukraine, Middle East. We're seeing supply disruptions in Middle East and Russian oil supply. That's causing spikes there. We're having ongoing volatility in the debt markets. Um, currency markets are now starting to reveal signals that central banks could be at odds with each other uh, as the rate differential in the U.S. leads to massive inflow of capital towards the US dollar. I mean, money flow is rotating here in part because we have much favorable yields um, as opposed to other areas around the world. And, and so that can sort of touch off some geopolitical tension in central banks in trying to defend their currencies. And you'll see that in terms of Japan and China, which are absolutely doing that right now. So, you know, alongside sort of these overbought conditions that we had in July, this very thin, very narrowly pointed market rally that we had in July, which was really not confirmed by the broader markets, you have these macro forces sort of coming back in. And again, I think it extends beyond Fed policy and whether or not the Fed you know, pauses, pivots, or, or raises again. I think there's some real concerns growing. And, and so you know, to, to answer the question, does this have more to go? I, I think this corrective phase we're in right now does, you know, based on our indication, uh, I, I think seasonality could play a part. But as I, I think I laid out, there, there's more that we're looking to at this, you know, in terms of disruptors, you know, beyond September, even October seasonality. So effectively, you know, what we're looking for is further repricing. Um, we've labeled this correction as a mean reversion correction. In other words, the S&P was was very extended above something like a popular 200-day moving average, and, and still very much is. The S&P is trading, you know, in 4,400 level. 
The 200-day moving average is still around 4,100, right? So this, what I believe is going to continue to occur against all this macro uncertainty, all this disruption that we're seeing, you know, even outside the markets, right, in terms of rate volatility, geopolitical uncertainty, um, Fed and central bank uncertainty, all these things coalescing. I think the markets are going to continue to mean revert to these 200-day moving averages. So that tells me that in the weeks ahead, uh, if not already, you know, we're going to see resumption of some repricing in the markets. We're already starting to see it post-Labor Day. But I do think the S&P can break its recent lows of around 4,300 or so and most likely go on to test that 200-day moving average for next big support. I, I, I do think that the S&P 500 is headed somewhere in the vicinity of 4,100 to 4,200 in, in the weeks ahead. One of the things that struck me, and you just touched upon it, is this rally where the broader market has not participated. It's been a handful of tech stocks with a magnificent seven. Dan, the only time I can remember seeing something similar to that was going back to the tech bubble when you had you know, stocks like Microsoft, Dell, Cisco, Intel, uh, the big sort of internet and computer stocks that dominated the NASDAQ that year. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, part of what we try to do is, as we're, you know, going out and, um, you know, trying to craft, you know, sort of these market calls based on our analysis is try to, you know, educate our readers. And, you know, we we use that as an example several times in a lot of our reports this past year. You know, in, in a bull market structure, in, in my opinion, looking at the historical data, it does not necessarily matter which sector leads on a relative basis. Um, I, I don't care that tech has to lead. It doesn't have to be cyclicals. Um, it can be consumer. At, at times in the past, it's been the banks. I mean, the, the rally from 2005, 2006, and 2007 was actually led by the financial sector. Um, so, you know, who leads and who lags is not the biggest concern. It's that you, you have to have as close to full participation as possible. You have to have as many sectors participating as possible. Because what that tells you is that money is rotating into the equity markets, like in general, broadly speaking, as an asset class versus other choices, versus other alternatives. Um, and when you don't have that, like we had that this year, money, it was it was very noticeable. I, I thought that it was, um, the writing was on the wall for most of the year that what we saw out of the S&P and such narrow leadership coming from like mega cap tech names, you know, is, is not sustainable. Um, and it got to a point where even the indices themselves were running out of steam. There's a couple of different ways you can measure what we call negative divergences. You know, one is, is like we talk about, OK, all money flow is going into like one or two stocks and the broader markets are flailing. That's a negative divergence. Another negative divergence is when your rate of ascent, right, when your rate of increase starts to decline um, and it's like you're, you're, you're losing speed and you're losing power as, as you're moving up the hillside. Uh, and that's exactly what we saw out of the S&P and the NASDAQ 100 by June and July of this year. So there are a number of technical signs. And again, those technical signs can't tell you, OK, we're headed for a major implosion. We're headed for a structural or secular bear market. Nor, you know, nor could easily tell you, OK, we're just headed for a mild pullback and a, and a blip. You know, that's kind of what they can't tell you. But we knew and, and we flagged it for our clients that, look, 
something is coming, a, a repricing has to come because this is clearly unsustainable. And so yours is a great example, that tech bubble, we saw very much the same thing. It was after 97 and more so after the 1998 emerging cr markets crisis that occurred in 98, you saw uh, just a major divergence there where tech took off and the NASDAQ comp pushed to 5,000 by the year 2000. And you watch the Dow just move sideways and lower. And actually, we saw the, like the banking system, the banking stocks, I should say, fall away. And again, it was this very narrow, pointed market. And that led to a structural downturn. I, you know, I don't think this one leads us to a structural downturn uh, because it was much more minor in scope. But like I said, our call is for more volatility. Um, our call has been that the markets carve out a U bottom in this cycle. So no V bottoms here. Uh, and we've been correct on that call for months now. The, 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 the markets have come down to these lower levels uh, and now they're moving sideways sort of in this trough and it's going to carve out a U for a while longer. Um, so we think we're still in that cycle. And then again, the shorter term call is, yeah, that narrow leadership that harkens back to 99 with tech or even 2007 with the financial system, that is signaling to us there's most likely more volatility ahead. I, you know, at this time, I don't believe in our call is not that the lows of last October are going to be broken. We are not looking for a secular downturn in the U.S. economy. We are not looking for a structural bear market in equities. Um, but we're looking for this basing effort, this U bottom, uh, to continue on for more months. I think it continues into 2024, as a matter of fact. Um, but again, that being said, um, we, I think the bottom or the floor has been established. I do not think we would break 3,500, 3,600 on, on the S&P 500 in, in this basing cycle. If we did break it, I think it would be very brief. It'd be a, a, a big buying opportunity. Um, but for now, we think you know we are headed lower. I think the next targets we have, watch for those recent lows, which was around 43.35 on the S&P. But I do think the destination here um, for the S&P is towards 4,100, 4,200. Not a structural downturn, not a secular bear market in stocks, but more pricing, more, uh, more repricing, more corrective activity ahead as we continue to base and bottom here. Let's talk about a macro factor that could weigh in here with the Fed and what happens going forward. And I want to talk about oil here, Dan. We're just, you know, pennies away from $88 a barrel. We think we're going to hit 90 and then maybe beyond that. What would that do for the market, the implications in terms of inflation? Because anything we buy in the store, grocery store, department store, or even Amazon, got there by a truck, a van, or something that uses gasoline or diesel fuel. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's going to weigh as a tax on the markets and, and go even, you know, really a step further because you kind of hit the nail on the head there with, with crude oil and energy prices um, moving higher. And Brent crude prices are at 90. They're likely going to $100 a barrel again. Um, but, you know, there there's a, a, a narrative that our central bankers and our central planners like to message um, to investors and traders and, and just you know the crowd at large, and that's that you know we're starting to get inflation under control. Um, but those CPI numbers that they watch strip away, you know, food and energy costs. Um, food and energy costs are 1.5x, 2.5x um, what they were two summers ago. 
at this point. Um, and that's going to act as a real tax on things. What I think, you know, the narrative that investors have now is, is if rates stay high and the, and the central bankers, the Fed, has to remain aggressive on fighting inflation, then your 10-year note yield is going to stay elevated above 4%. It's likely going to go to 5%. This is going to weigh as a pressure on multiple expansion over the short run. So I think crude oil prices are going to be a detractor from allowing um, you know, equity multiples to push meaningfully higher. I think we're going to be bouncing around in a trading range but I think that what crude oil prices are doing, you know, sort of counteracts what the Fed messaging has been, which is, you know, we have inflation under control, right? We have price inflation under control. The next thing we're looking to tackle is like wage inflation. If we can get that under control, then it's it's sort of game one. Uh, game is one. But what oil and the energy complex is signaling to us is that they may not have price um, inflation under control. Uh, so much as the CPI, you know, would indicate, you know, by that chart. And and the way you look at that is is PCE, um, which is personal consumption expenditures, um, which is still very very elevated. Um, it, it it's come down a little bit, but it hasn't dropped. You know, PPI CPI have dropped like stones on the charts. Traders look at this and say, okay, inflation's no longer a problem. Risk on. But, you know, when you dig through all that data and you look under the hoods of those, you know, those metrics and you find other ones that are really more meaningful, um, you'll see things like PCE, which I follow very closely, wage inflation. And I also watch labor participation of key demographic groups, all those very, very strong, very, very resilient. So, you know, the fact that energy prices, crude oil prices, I should say, you know, breaking out here on, on one aspect, pointing to inflation I think it's confirming that we we still kind of have stubborn inflation. I think the crowd is starting to realize that. You're seeing that in the backup of the 10-year note yield once again, and it's putting multiples under pressure. It's going to put the markets under pressure over the short run. So there has to be some kind of end game there. There has to be some type of pivot or some type of macro trigger that dislodges those trends in, in inflation you know, allowing multiples uh, to rise again, you know, unfettered, right, um, by higher cost of capital. But until then, I, I think it's it's going to weigh down. You know, the other thing, um, Jim, that we look at is geopolitical uncertainty. And we look at them, um, not that they influence secular long-term trends, but they do influence, you know, short-term trading trends. Um, and I think there's a number of things you know, on the horizon. Uh, you know, I mentioned Russia, Ukraine. I do believe we're likely to see escalation there. I think that could be one of the disruptions in the uh, oil supply um, that's that's causing greater demand on our oil stocks. Um, the other is our looming presidential election next year. Now, I, you know, from as a technician and, and looking at historical data, I, I don't care who wins as president. They don't necessarily influence the market structure for these long-term cycles, in my opinion, based, based on what I've studied, the president doesn't make too much of a difference, but could the election, or which party I should say, right? But, um, you know, could election disruption, um, you know, potentially disrupt the equity markets next year over the short run? Um, I think that's a non-zero probability at this time. I, I do believe you know, a number of things are brewing that could cause bigger social unrest. 
you know, could that fetter down into day-to-day trading in equities and and kind of generate, you know, a risk-off sentiment further? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely can. Um, and so there's a number of things that we're watching um, this time around. That's why I said, I think at the top of my comments, yeah, September is notorious, October is notorious, and you have all the seasonality around it. But there are a number of things which can sort of be these sort of minor black swan events that, that and I'm not sure the markets have entirely priced in. I mean, I I think this year was all about you focus myopically on what the Fed says and does day after day. This has all been about this year has been all about the Fed. Do they pause? Do they pivot? Do they raise? And it was like wash, rinse, repeat. Um, and there is far more going on. Um, and the markets will act as a discounting mechanism to all these things. So, for example, like oil prices, are, are oil prices breaking out here because of Fed pause pivot narrative? No, I, and I don't think anybody thinks that necessarily. So, you know, the markets are this discovery mechanism, this discounting mechanism. And a lot of times the markets are moving, you know, before we can even understand and attach a reason to why. Um, and so I'm, I'm speculating here. Um, but again, based on all the market movement I see and all that I've seen this year, and again, it extends beyond the equity markets, but we are we're looking at the currency markets and we're bracing for a central bank battle there. Uh, I think you're going to continue to see central banks um, be aggressive in rate hikes. And in part is the messaging is one to you know, tame inflation, but the, the underlying message is to defend their currencies. Uh, as the dollar gets stronger, global liquidity in dollar terms is shrinking. Um, and so if you have something like that, you know, as a macro factor, which is a generally rare occurrence, if you have that plus an inflation battle, plus potential for a U.S. economy slowing and maybe moving towards recession, I would say latter half of 2024, but that's I think you're going to see recession odds start to rise in the coming months. I'm not dead set on it's going to be in 2024. I would think very late 2024 or 2025 would be our marker for recession. But again, remember, markets will start to discount that ahead of time. So geopolitics, inflation fighting, tightening liquidity conditions, potential recession ahead. I think there's a number of cross currents here. Um, that suggests, and, and again, energy prices, right, you know, exploding higher. And and the charts on WTI, so, you know, Brent is, is what over UTI, NYMEX, RBOB is what we pay here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both are exploding higher, both to be breaking out. And this is coming at the same time that the dollar is, is starting to break out. You know, it's rare that you have crude oil prices and the dollar in such a tight positive correlation. We studied this over long periods of time, there's really little or no correlation. If anything, it gets skewed towards a negative correlation between dollar and crude oil prices. But it's really, it, it, it's, it can be weak most of the time. But since about 2021, very strong correlation between the dollar crude oil prices, both are breaking out you know, simultaneously or, or getting close to breaking out simultaneously. That's telling me something, something shifting on the macro front. That's what I'm saying. That could be like this disruptor away from this Fed pause pivot narrative. All right. Well, it sounds like a time of to be a little bit cautious, more volatility. Dan, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow you, how can they do so? I would send an email to myself, uh, Dan Wontrovsky. My email address is uh, D. Wontrovsky, W-A-N-T-R-O-B-S-K-I at Janney.com. And we'll, uh, we'll get back to you. 
All right. Well, listen, Dan, as always, pleasure having you on the program. I hope to talk to you once again. Great, Jim. Thank you so much. The economy ran just far too hot in uh, 2021, 2022 due to the COVID stimulus, as we've talked about, fiscally and monetarily. And only recently are the signs showing modestly softer labor demand that has increased, uh, inching closer to equilibrium. But we're nowhere near uh, having a surplus of labor or a risk of skyrocketing unemployment in a crackdown here. So we still see an economy that is characterized by shortages, not by surpluses. We don't have a surplus of cars. We don't have a surplus of homes. We don't have a surplus of airplanes. Those are three huge areas. And they all are showing a need for more workers to produce more homes, to build more cars, to build more planes. So that is all just the opposite of what you expect to see if you were on the precipice of recession. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, you would probably be surprised if I told you one of the best performing assets over the last couple decades has been gold. But gold hasn't been doing much lately, nor has silver. Joining us on the program is Bob Coleman. He's proprietor of GoldSilverVault.com. Bob, I want to talk about silver first, because up until recently, if you wanted to buy silver, and this is probably the first time I've seen it in my career, we saw premiums on silver eagles that were as high as 80 to 90%. Now, they've pulled back in the last month, so I'd like to get your take why. They're still 40 to 50%, which is still high. Yeah, you made some good perceptions there with the Silver Eagle or Silver Eagle premium. But the issue is it was somewhat of a function of the industry's ability to have some degree of pricing power over the consumer. And then what we kind of saw that kind of peaked, I think, last November, October, November timeframe. And then you had the banking crisis in March, April, and you had the flare up in premiums again. But what happened basically was the mint, U.S. mint in late July, early August, came out surprisingly and said, all of a sudden, we're going to double our allocation going from a every other week allocation of U.S. Silver Eagles to we're going to be able to offer, I think it was 3 million extra ounces. So they were able to offer Silver Eagles every week, basically doubled the production. And what that basically did is you had a lot of wholesalers and a lot of dealers that were holding on to this product because it was sort of like the last premiums had been collapsing because the, the industry saw a lot of slowdown in physical bars and coins. The retail market really started slowing down in June. And so 
what we started to see was that the, the last product to, to fall was the premiums of the Silver Eagles. But once they announced that, wholesalers, all of a sudden, the authorized participants started to just dump inventory because they were sitting on so much trying to sort of squeeze out as much premium as they could. So that basically hammered the market with Silver Eagles, hammered the premiums of Silver Eagles. So basically, for example, they were trading at you know $15 over spot. You could buy it from any big online dealer. They crashed. We were offering Silver Eagles when that news came out at, I think it was 375 over spot for Silver Eagles. Right now, the premiums have come up a little bit because people have had a lot of, I should say, a pent-up demand because most people haven't bought Silver Eagles in three years because the premium has been so high. But that premium, that, that pent-up demand came into the market. So now we're offering Silver Eagles at $4.95 over spot, which is probably you know 50% to 100% cheaper than most other online dealers out there. But that tells you the markup and provisions that the industry has had over the consumer the last three years. You know, as we look at the gold and silver market, as you pointed out, it's slowed down. I was reading that individual investors have dumped about 550 tons of gold. There are obviously individual investors have been dumping silver if you look at SLV. But the one difference, Bob, is while individual investors have been dumping gold, central banks are the largest buyers that I've seen in decades. I think they bought close to 1,300 tons of gold last year, and they're on track to buy close to 1,400 tons. So to me, that explains the difference between gold and silver, why gold has held up better in silver. What's your take on this? Yeah, that's partly the case, being that gold is more of mainstream asset that kind of gets the attention of institutions, whereas silver is sort of a more of the industrial side of silver is the central bank equivalent buyer, so to speak. So you have industry that buys about 60, 65% of the physical silver that's out there. And you know, when the investment side of the equation starts to slow down, the investment side tends to be what, what really changes the price because that tends to develop the either the supply deficit or supply surpluses based on whatever type of demand you, you see from the investment side from year to year. But yeah, I think you know what's interesting with silver, because you mentioned the ETFs as well, silver, it's amazing how the price on both gold and silver have held up as well as it has if you're just looking at ETF flows. For example, you know, silver was $28 an ounce back when the SLV hit 700 million shares outstanding. And it's about 0.92 ounces to each share of, to every SLV share just to give you an idea. Well, there's been so much liquidation of ETFs uh, this year, for example, that right now we're down to about, I think it's 476 million shares now that's in SLV ETF. So you've you've had a liquidation of over 200 million shares, yet the price of silver is still above $20 an ounce, is still above $23 an ounce. And that's pretty significant when you're saying, well, where's all the silver going? Now, of course, a lot of it last year went to India, but this year you have India is not a very big buyer of silver, at least through July. Their demand numbers are down as much as 90%. So somewhere that silver is being taken off exchange and being held somewhere. As you take a look at this, in terms of what really strikes me is fundamentally, we're using more silver now. You cannot do solar without silver. And I was reading just on fundamentals that they only produce so much silver, but what is more disturbing, I'm looking at Mexico, which is the largest producer of silver. Bob, they're going to run out of their reserves in six years. China is going to run out of silver by the end of the decade. So that tells me there's a big storm coming down the road for a metal that is critical to green. They're using it as a bio side. It's critical to electronics. 
So you've got a key component, silver, that is going to become, in my opinion, become scarcer as this decade proceeds. Not only that, when you're talking about Mexico, Newmont Mines, which has that, they have one of the largest mining operations or silver mines in the world. Currently, right now, that mine is, there's a massive strike and Newmont Mines is losing three and a half million dollars a day just by non-production of any metals there because of labor strikes. And that's something that you know, we haven't really seen in the mining industry, you know, a pickup in labor demand or higher wages or want to enjoy maybe in more of the profits, so to speak, because of labor being a real issue when it comes to cost of living because inflation's rising. That's having an impact, especially in our metals markets as well. What I find kind of fascinating, I first got into silver. I was introduced to it by Dave Morgan in the OO decade very, very early on. And it was still primarily its main use was in photography. We were making the switch to digital. And now take a look at we have our iPhones and, you know, our, we take our pictures with that. And then they would recycle it. But as the gold market took off, as inflation heated up, as demand came in from the emerging markets, especially China and India, gold went from 250 to, I think, what was it, 1900 by 2011? One of the best producing returns. And most people forget about that. Even if you look today, if you take a look at gold over the last two decades, it's outperformed the stock market. Yes. Yeah. And the funny thing is, yeah, you could also make the case that gold is, you know, from 2000, you know, obviously everyone likes to cherry pick dates and so forth, but gold has actually outperformed, for example, you know, Disney stock or some of these big name companies. It's an asset that's very unloved, especially right now, you know, volumes have dropped off. People have actually become very disgruntled and very frustrated with the metals. Sentiment is very low and very poor. Nobody really trusts the rally. You know, these rallies that we have currently in gold and silver, like for silver, it goes down to 2250, it rallies up to 25 and it bounces back and forth. There just isn't any conviction to move silver past you know, $25. You don't see physical activity in the public getting behind the markets right now. Obviously, with interest rates rising, that becomes, you know, there's a competition for metals, unlike the the zero interest rate environment. But yeah, this is, you have that going on at the same time. You have obviously the debt situation and the currencies around the world, you know, shifting and devaluing and, you know, and addressing, you know, liquidity concerns. And, and obviously with, you know, our treasury is putting out more debt. I think it's like $5 billion an hour is, is what they're issuing which is just unreal. Yeah, that's probably the elephant in the room that you don't hear too many people talking about. And, you know, usually the Republicans made an issue. You don't hear it coming from the Republican side. But, Bob, we're going to hit $33 trillion this month, and we're on track to hit $34 trillion into the $35 trillion by the end of the year. Interest is almost taking 20% of tax revenues. I think we take in about 45 4.6 in tax revenues and our budget's going to be what 6.6 to 6.7 so we're running two and a half to three trillion dollar deficits the treasury has to go in i think it's between now and the end of the year they're going to have to raise two trillion in debt and foreigners are buying less of it so somewhere down the road i think the fed is going to get to what i call fiscal dominance there will be no other alternative but for the fed to finance it well, here's also another statistic that that's wild. 
you know, the, the Treasury was at the, over the last four or six weeks, they've raised you know, or issued $800 billion in treasuries. It would take the gold industry to create the, enough gold, $800 billion worth of gold. It would take them four years to issue all that gold or to mine and issue all that gold. And the Treasury does it in six weeks. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much, not just in terms of issuance, but also then you have the question of debt servicing and you have obviously the energy issues that we start to see. You see oil going up. How is the, if the energy issue becomes a real problem, how are you going to be able to service the debt if the economy starts to become impacted by rising energy prices? I mean, there's a litany of different rabbit holes you could start going down. Yeah. The thing that really strikes me though, is if you look at silver and a lot of key metals, whether it's silver, whether it's copper, it's cobalt, lithium, all the things that we need for our green economy, Everybody knows we need more silver in solar panels. You can't have solar panels without silver. But if you look at other uses of silver as biocides, industrial metals, and how important silver is as a conductor for electronics. So, you know, we have our iWatches, our iPhones, our iPads, our laptops, all these electronic gizmos that we have that take silver. And yet two of the biggest producers are silver are going to be running out of it by the balance of this decade. And nobody sees that coming. Well, and on top of that, the primary silver producers, their cost of production and is really between $21 and $23 an ounce. They're, in some instances, they're losing money at this price, you know, trying to produce silver. So, And some of them are compensating themselves by going after gold and using that as a byproduct against their silver production. But yet, it's hard to make money if you're just primarily mining silver. Yeah, it's a byproduct of copper and gold mine. So, in fact, you know, it was funny. We were talking about where this silver price, it's, it goes down to 2250 23 goes back up to 25 25 and goes down. Bob, it reminds me when I first started investing in silver, it was three and a half bucks to five bucks. At three and a half, the commercials would go long. At five bucks, they would go short. And you're almost seeing the same thing. At 25 something, they go short goes back down in the 22, 23, they go long playing the same game. Yeah. Like, for example, about two weeks ago, the managed money crowd actually went short silver again. And that's right before we had a short covering rally. So you're exactly right that the managed money crowd tries to push. And that's what's really moving the market right now. It has absolutely very little to do with physical activity. It's more about CTAs, hedge funds, money managers really trying to push the market around via the futures and some of these structured trading products. You know what? It really hits me too, because everybody's saying, oh, the S&P's up, but they don't realize the S&P is up with seven stocks. And if you back out those seven stocks, I think the unweighted S&P is up about five or six percent, and it hasn't done much. And the only time that we have ever seen that happen before was in the year 2000 with the internet bubble, where you had a handful of stocks, your Cisco, your Microsofts, and Dells that dominated the NASDAQ and the market. Same thing that's occurring now. And I just think that people are getting frustrated. It's getting harder to find bargains. Stocks are overpriced, but nobody is getting the commodity story. They don't see the demand fundamentals. You know, name, I can't think of any major new silver finds or elephant finds of copper, silver, or gold that we're finding around the world. Yeah, you've had almost like 20 years of declining productions, or you haven't had a major discovery in like 20 or 30 years. It is a big problem out there. And some people are pointing to, well, the T bill rates are five, five and a half percent. So I can just throw my money into that and use that as maybe some, maybe a risk averse asset. And I think the metals are seeing a little bit of competition with 
understood that. And I think a lot of people that I talk to have just simply been burned out by the very high premiums the last three years that a lot of investors had basically confronted with because of the industry's ability to have that pricing power, to have sort of that mantra of, you know, their shortages or they're creating that fear mongering mentality that, that gets people rushed in there and not thinking about the premium or the spread risk and how these premiums can collapse. And now, all of a sudden that now is part of your cost basis and you have to overcome that. But buying it for the insurance because of whether it's the bank crisis or the COVID thing. And I think people are becoming a little bit more frugal and an understanding of you know, how the industry works and maybe they're not, they're holding back here a little bit. I know we took a look at it and for silver, we liked silver. We were buying silver bars because we could get it close to the price of silver. But what really struck us, Bob, was the mining industry itself. These companies are better managed today than they were in the OO decade. They're not paying super premiums to buy other companies. They're more frugal with the way they spend money in CapEx. And for the first time, at least in my career, you're seeing halfway decent dividends coming out of the mining sector. But I wonder if you might touch upon this. People have no idea how small the mining sector is when you, I mean, if you could take all the world's mining companies, they're less than the market cap of Apple. Oh, yes. You're talking into hundreds of billions, not even a trillion. Yeah. So you take all these the world's largest mining companies and let's face it, folks, anything you buy in the store, an item for your house, it took raw materials. It took forest. It took somebody mining something to create it. And yet that industry is worth a fraction of a lot of these companies that trade on the exchange. And because of that, I wonder if you might comment, when money comes into the sector, it's so small. That's why you see these, what I call these incredible price gaps that you'll see in the metals market, in the metals shares, because all of a sudden somebody says, oh, I want to be in that sector. There's just not much of it around. So when that money comes in, it explodes. Yeah, no question about it. And on top of that, you know, a lot of activity is now being done outside the U.S. markets. For example, the Shanghai trade, the, the Shanghai exchange for precious metals, you're seeing the top 10 traders that are sort of, there's a report that some of the institutions follow and it's like the top 10 traders report. They're at their all-time high long levels or what they call length. They're long silver and gold right now. And on the silver side, about a week or two ago, they were at their largest long position, I think, in history. So, and part of that is there's a solar panel story, which you alluded to earlier. Part of it also is there is a growing concern out of China about the devaluation of the wand. And that story, the metal story is not just a US-centric story like it was in the 80s. This is a global story. And so you may see other countries start to be the buyers of the metals, and they actually may start the market action, which you you know typically a lot of times you may think the US kind of starts all market actions. But in, in this instance, it may just be you know other countries that become physical buyers again, and that's where that demand starts to come from. And could you see if that was to happen? So things really start to explode on the Shanghai, but they remain suppressed here that somebody starts arping this. You buy your silver and gold here at a lesser price, sell it over in Shanghai for a higher price and arp it. Yeah, you saw that. I think if I wasn't mistaken, I think the premium got as high as I think it was 60 or $100 an ounce for gold. Difference between London and Shanghai a couple of weeks ago. And then, of course, you had that explosion in short covering. But that's the sort of beach ball whole holding underwater scenario where you, know, you short the market down and it only can go so far before that pressure just forces it back up. And what I find interesting is 
This move right now, the last week or so, has been very controlled. It's not which kind of scares me a little bit because you may get some kind of flush, I guess you could say. I don't see the metals breaking down like a 2013 event when we had real interest rates go positive in 2013 and then the market break down. I think what's happening here is you may get one more flush, which will probably put you at the low of the year. And then I think we'll start to rally into the end of the year. And so I think the metals are very well poised, especially going into next year with the election and some of the other geopolitical events that could develop. Plus you have you know China that's desperately trying to keep their property market afloat and their economy going. I think that the Fed, like you said, will be handcuffed at some point because there's just no way that the U.S. government can service their debt. You know, with a trillion dollar plus the debt servicing costs, interest costs, you know, that's only going to just balloon everything. That can only go on for so long. Well, we're extremely bullish metals. All you have to do is just take a look. I am really surprised. You know, the deficit was a big issue in the 90s. It was a big issue in the OO decade. And now it's the biggest in history, literally growing exponentially and nobody's talking about it. You would think that gold and silver would be on fire, you know, based on the conditions of just that alone and just the servicing needs and really the concern for, I mean, we've never seen a non-wartime scenario or a growth scenario in the economy where you run trillion dollar deficits. I mean, that's, I mean, we're seeing things, I think for a lot of us in, in the financial business, the first time we've ever seen this kind of stuff. I mean, you, you really can't, in some pieces, you can't can't really use history as a guide in some areas because the leverage is, is so big or grand or the creation debt creation and uh, deficit spending is, is so enormous. Yeah, this just reminds me of the calm before the storm. Well, Bob, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow or contact you, and I full disclosure, we use you for our clients because you have the best prices of anybody they've ever seen. I mean, your prices over silver are literally about 40% of what uh, Kitco is. And so I want to make that disclosed up front because we like bullion and we like to get it at a reasonable price. And uh, like many other people, we didn't like the 80 and 90% premiums that we're seeing out there. So why don't you give out your website if you would? Yeah, definitely. It's goldsilvervault.com. Just goldsilvervault.com all one word.com. And there you can find information on our depository services. We are one of the largest depositories in the country and in the USA. We have a $700 million all-risk insurance policy through Lloyd's of London. We also have logistics support where we have uh, insurance for transportation as well. We also run an armored fleet of trucks where we can move up to $10 million in the vehicle. On our site as well, we have a pricing page for if people want to buy metals, they can kind of see firsthand what the premiums over spot are. So that, that actually provides a little bit more transparency. And then also... I'll be speaking at the Silver Symposium, I think that's September 29th through August 1st, down in Las Vegas at the Caesars Palace. We'll be speaking on Saturday, September 30th. Uh, So if anybody wants to join down there, they could come meet me. I'm actually going to be sponsoring a breakfast event as well as an afternoon speaking engagement where we're going to actually, I'm I'm going to actually personally sponsor someone to come with me that's very highly regarded in the industry that's really going to tie in the energy story to the precious metal story because of the conditions of oil and how that relates to debt servicing and the economy and the economy's ability to create the tax revenue to you know help uh, finance the government, that type of thing. So look forward to it. Well, listen, Bob, thanks for coming on the program. Hope to talk to you once again. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 that's 888 486 
888-888-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk